Welcome to the Upper 90 Football Podcast, providing American coverage and opinions on all things football. I'm Garrett Post. And I'm Justin Ruderman. And we have yet another packed episode this week as the 2021-22 season comes towards its end. Justin, we'll start in the Premier League where all of the title race, top four race, and relegation battle are coming down to the final day, which of course is next Sunday, Championship Sunday as we like to call it. Um, And Justin, we'll start with the top four race. Obviously, Spurs and Arsenal battling it out to get Champions League qualification for next season. And they met last Thursday in the North London Derby, a game that I had been hyping up for months pretty much before we knew when it would be scheduled for. And the game did not disappoint. Well, unless you're an Arsenal fan, that is. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, I, I could say disappointed as a neutral as well because it wasn't that close of a game I mean this was pretty dominant from Spurs uh, from the beginning to the end right obviously Harry Kane's penalty in the 22nd minute got them off to a quick start and then holding gets sent off Uh, Kane quickly puts in his second and from then on I mean the game is pretty much done by halftime right Son scores early in the second half and it's just uh, almost easy for Spurs I mean I didn't expect it to be like that, uh, I thought it was Arteta was really going to get his side pumped up for this game, but it didn't seem like they were up for it. Um, and then it didn't seem like they were up for it earlier today as we record on Monday. Uh, they just lost to Newcastle, and it was a, a quality performance from Newcastle from front to start. I mean, from beginning to end. So it was, I, I just don't know where Arsenal uh, left their energy. No, I mean, I think the holding red card, which was very, very foolish, by the way, he had already picked up yellow. He was fouling Sun left, right, and center in that first half. And then he basically leaves a little elbow in on Sun, hits him in the head, and Mike Dean had no problem giving him a second yellow. Um, and that really killed Arsenal's chances. You know, the penalty was a little bit soft, uh, called on, on Cedric for kind of shoving Sun in the back when there was a ball getting floated into the box. Um but, but Arsenal still had a chance of getting back into the game at that point. It's not like Spurs had been creating a lot of chances until that penalty, but with holding getting sent off, that was pretty much all she wrote. And then just the clinicality of young Min's son. And, and you're right, Arsenal have bottled it pretty much at this point. 538 gives them a 4% chance of qualifying for the Champions League. And that's because Tottenham only need one point against Norwich on Sunday to secure Champions League football next year and so there's a very very slim chance that Arsenal uh, you know even if they do beat Everton that Spurs will lose to Norwich it's just not going to happen is it Um, and so Spurs have managed with that win and now Arsenal dropping points at St. James's Park it it seems like Antonio Conte has come in midseason and gotten them into fourth place what a job he's done absolutely Uh, I mean Arteta's had basically three years now to get his team, his project up and running this young project that he's, you know, building at Arsenal, which we've both backed a lot on this podcast. Um, And Conte came in, you know, mid this year and got his team pushing and pushed past Arteta already. So I think that it's completely understandable. I mean, it's hard for me not to say Conte is, uh, you know, top three manager, at least in the league, if not in the world, because to me, what he did this year is way more impressive than what Thomas Tuchel has done this year. Thomas Tuchel is ending this year with zero trophies. Uh, and, you know, people thought Chelsea would compete for the title this year, or at least, you know, as compete for that second place. They've been in third place for a while now. We have nothing to, you know, discuss about them. So what Conte has done is really, really impressive. Um, he's bringing Spurs back into Champions League, unless, of course, they they lose to Norwich, as you say. Even if they draw, uh, it's essentially locked up, unless you know Arsenal were to win by like twenty goals. Um, but yeah, it's it's just an incredible job from Antonio Conte, as you say. And we're gonna see what he's how he's backed in the summer by Daniel Levy because he he deserves the backing um, to to get some big signings in and build a team that he thinks can compete in you know, the Premier League as well as the Champions League that he is about to be in. I think that being said, though, for Arsenal, obviously it's a huge disappointment. They had their destiny in their own hands of getting back into the Champions League 
but uh, now it seems like it'll be a fifth straight year without Champions League football for the Gunners. But I still think this season has been progress for them, right? They, they were not even close to competing for Champions League the last couple of years. Um, I, I think a lot of their young players have made big strides, especially Bukayo Saka, Martin Odegaard, Smith Rowe, for example. And I also think Arteta will get some backing. They're still, you know, you look at their squad top to bottom and it's really not that impressive. It's a lot of, you know, young and talented players, but they have no experience. And that obviously probably led to this collapse at the end of the season. Mm -hmm. But I still think that this season should be classed as success for Arsenal. I don't think anybody would have pegged them to, you know, be in the Champions League race until literally the last day of the season. So, um, you know, as much as, yeah, it's disappointing for Arteta and we've backed him, I still back him because I think that he's done a really good job this season overall. It's a shame that they bottled it, you know, a la Leicester City the last two years. But, I mean, I don't expect them to be declining down into 13th or wherever Leicester are right now next season. So I think it's still, uh, you know, Arsenal still on a upwards trajectory here, and I still think there's a lot to look forward to if you're a Gunners fan. Yeah, I think that's understandable and that's been my view um but this is a, a major bottle for arteta and, and a huge stain on his time at arsenal so far in my opinion because he just went into newcastle today and was unprepared uh for what was about to hit him he thought that newcastle would just give them possession and, and sit back and hit on the counter that's not what newcastle did arteta came out with a false game plan and you thought okay at halftime you know it's time to change it up and find uh, a way around it, bring Martinelli on, find something new. He couldn't do it. Arsenal produced their fourth lowest expected goals of the entire season tonight with 0.42 against Newcastle. It was a dreadful performance in the biggest game of their season. Uh, and Arteta needs to be held accountable for that, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, he's definitely not going anywhere, right? He recently just signed a new contract extension, so he will be staying around. Um but to me, uh, definitely a big stain on his time so far at Arsenal. Moving from the top four race, Justin, we can go to the title race, which also seems almost decided at this point, despite the fact that City did drop points this week. But before that, they went to Wolves, and it was Kevin De Bruyne scoring four goals, a 24-minute hat trick. Only It took him less than a half hour to get the first three. Just a remarkable performance from him. Absolutely. Not only a 24-minute hat trick, a 24-minute weak-footed hat trick. All three with his left foot. Uh, only the second player in Premier League history to do that, the other being Harry Kane, unsurprisingly. Um, but yeah, it's just Kevin De Bruyne took over uh, this game, and that is what he's been doing recently in Man City's biggest games. I mean, you look at what he's done in the past two to three months – uh, he has had a goal contribution in almost every single game. It is really ridiculous, the form that he has been in. Uh, I don't understand. People used to say that Kevin De Bruyne is not a big game player. It is the biggest myth, potentially in all of football. It makes no sense. He is the very definition of a big game player. He shows up constantly for Manchester City, as opposed to Mohamed Salah, who has not been showing up lately for Liverpool. Liverpool did get a 2-1 win midweek. Uh, against Aston Villa, which they made more difficult for themselves than needed to be, uh, and kept pace with Man City, who then dropped, pay dropped points against uh, West Ham, getting that comeback draw, which, you know, that was a, a big comeback for Man City. Don't underrate that. But Mares missing the winning penalty, unfortunately, it being saved. Uh, and so it will come down to the final day. Manchester City need to find a way to win at home. Uh, on the final day against Aston Villa. And that is basically what it comes down to. If they are not able to find a way, then Liverpool can uh, clinch the title with a win against Wolves. And then Justin, of course, the relegation race is also still alive until the final day. Leeds United are still likely the favorites to go down, despite the fact that they did rescue a one, one draw against Brighton at Ellen road on Sunday. Um, Everton, went to Watford midweek, huge chance to pick up three points and effectively seal their safety, but it ended in a nil-nil draw. Lampard was pretty happy not to throw the kitchen sink at this game and, and take the point, which now after the loss against Brentford at the weekend um, really seems like two points dropped, not one point game. And talking about that Brentford game, I mean, 
what a swing, what an insane first half, especially it was DCL scoring his first goal since match week three to give Everton the lead in the 10th minute. But then Justin, and this is where the game entirely flipped. Richarlison was getting absolutely dragged down in the box. I mean, some of the images of how far his shirt was being grabbed by Christopher Iyer is just nuts. Michael Oliver sees it perfectly. Doesn't give a penalty. They kick a long ball over the top. Ivan Tony runs in and Branthwaite catches his back leg. Tony goes down and it's a red card to Branthwaite for denying of an obvious goal scoring opportunity. Um, and, and that completely changed this game because Everton were dominating this first, you know, 20 minutes of the game. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that that's a penalty on Richarlison and that red card should never happen. And I feel very confident that Everton would have won this game had they had 10 men, but instead they're, or had they had 11 men, but instead they're down to 10 for over 70 minutes. Brentford capitalized. Uh, they got an own goal, a Seamus Coleman own goal, which is very unlucky to equalize. And then Richarlison won another penalty should have been two, but he only had one and scored it himself. It was two one at half, but a three minute collapse from Everton at the back, which saw Visa and Rico Henry score headers uh, gave Brentford the three, two win um, and Everton, you know, who could have secured their safety with a win did not. And that leaves the door open for Burnley and Leeds. Leeds go to Brentford uh, on Sunday, Justin. Meanwhile, Everton and Burnley both have two games left. So Everton can still seal their survival with a win against Palace on Thursday. Uh, and I really don't want that game against Arsenal to matter. Um, even though, you know, Arsenal most likely, even if they beat us, it, they won't get top four. They're still definitely going to throw it their everything at it, right? It's not like they've already given up or the, it's mathematically impossible for them to get top four. So Everton need to beat Palace on Thursday to stay up. Burnley, meanwhile, have Villa and Newcastle. So tough games for sure, but, um, you know, could definitely see them getting a few points out of that. So at the moment, Justin, 538 has Everton down at 8% to get relegated, which seems honestly low because Palace are very good at the moment. They, ha they have not been losing much recently at all. Um, Burnley at 38% and Leeds at 54%. Um, there's definitely going to be some drama, some twists and turns awaiting. If Everton do beat Palace on, on Thursday, then it just comes down to whether Burnley can get any points out of the game in hand that they have. But if they lose both, then we could see Burnley going down. It's still very much up for grabs. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Burnley have a couple games, so they're more likely to stay up than Leeds uh, statistically. However, they still have to find a way to get points and neither of those games or get at least a point, right? Um, because neither of those games are, are going to be easy. Villa nor Newcastle. Uh, Newcastle made that clear today against Arsenal. They are in, in top form and all their players, you know, auditioning for Eddie Howe to stay on for next season. So we will see, but I don't think Leeds have too small of a shot there. I think that they could definitely pull off um, this shocker, which would be great uh, as a U.S. fan, right? We like to see Jesse Marsh stay up, uh, obviously secondarily to you uh, because you need uh, Everton to stay up. Of course, we had a big moment just quickly in that Chelsea versus Leeds game where in the first time in Premier League history, we had an American score a goal against an American coach. Uh, Christian Pulisic, of course, scoring for Chelsea against uh, Jesse Marsh of Leeds. So uh, that was a pretty cool moment for U.S. fans. And on the topic of Leeds, Justin, I mean, you're right. They still definitely have a shot, which is, you know, why 538 has it, at, you know, a little bit less than 50-50 in their favor. But the fact of the matter is that they are a point ahead of Burnley. So if Burnley lose against both Villa and Newcastle, which is not that far-fetched considering, you know, how well Newcastle are playing, obviously, and Villa are not pushovers at all. You know, they gave Liverpool a real run for their money. If Burnley lose both those games, Leeds will be safe. So Leeds definitely need help. And that's the difference between Everton and Burnley is that they both have their own fate in their hands, whereas Leeds need a win and they need other teams to lose. Um, so no, they definitely have a shot and that's why it, it really is one of the most compelling relegation races that we've seen in quite some time. Yeah. It really boils down to Leeds need as many points from one game as Burnley get from two. Um, 
and then we were talking about Villa. They had a big uh, announcement. They officially signed Philippe Coutinho on a permanent, um, which is great for them. But to me, the talking point is Barcelona because Barcelona lost 128 and a half million US dollars on Philippe Coutinho. I mean, what? I mean, it's just kind of a summary of the Bartomeu era at Barcelona. Just complete incompetency. And uh, I tweeted, Justin, when when this was made official, I tweeted, this has to be a, a money laundering scheme because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. It's just so crazy. Like, that is an insane amount of money. And, you know, it's no surprise that Barca are in the financial troubles that they're in and, you know, potentially have to sell Frankie de Jong, which has been a big topic, you know, where he might end up going if Barcelona are forced to sell him this summer, which is definitely a possibility because of things like this, because of so many horrible financial decisions that they've made over the past, you know, decade or so, um, maybe even less than that. And they find themselves in this hole and, and, you know, Villa are really profiting off of it. Coutinho, obviously happy to stay playing under his former teammate, Steven Gerrard, which is a foreshadowing for another player who might be joining them, which we will talk about later on. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great for Villa. He's had a, a decent impact since coming in. And if he can, you know, stay fit, maintain his spot in the team next season with a full season of football, we could definitely see him making some more waves for Villa. Absolutely. And then before we move on to some cup talk, Garrett, we have to discuss the golden boot race because it is getting tight. We currently have Mohamed Salah on 22 goals, Hyungman Sun on 21 goals. Uh, Salah has two games to play left, right? Southampton uh, and then Wolves. Well, Son Hyungman only has that one game on the final day, but it is against the worst team in the league, Norwich City. So, Garrett, my question is, who's winning this Golden Boot? Chungmin Son's going to win the Golden Boot, and, and I can tell you exactly why. Firstly, Mohamed Salah was injured in the FA Cup final. He came off very early, and I just don't really see Klopp risking him considering, you know, how much this Champions League final means to Mohamed Salah. You know, he didn't get to play in the last one against Madrid because he was injured by Sergio Ramos. Um, and, and so Salah is definitely going to be trying to save himself for this. I think Liverpool should have enough with their other attacking players. Sadio Mane has been on fire recently. Luis Diaz, we know, is a very good player. Diogo Jota, although he hasn't been at his best recently, that's still enough attacking prowess that they should be able to get wins in their last two games and, and put the pressure on City, you know, who just need to find that win at home against Villa. Um, and so I don't really think Salah's going to play that much in these last two games. I think he's going to be saving himself for the Champions League final. Meanwhile, Spurs, they need a win. And obviously it's, it's Norwich. So, you know, they won't have to try too hard, I don't think. But at the same time, they're going to be going all guns blazing into this game because they don't want to bottle it and, and give it to Arsenal, which is still a possibility. So I, I could see Sun scoring two goals in this game, getting 23 and beating Salah by one. And so I think Sun Hyung Min is going to end up as the Golden Boot winner. You know, Garrett, I'm going to have to agree with you that Hyung Min Sun is going to win the Golden Boot. But I'm not going to give the same reasoning as you because I'm not sure that Klopp wants to rest Salah. I understand he came off early in the FA Cup final, uh, but... That was, you know, precautionary in my opinion. He's still trying to win the league. I don't think Klopp's just going to give up on the league like that. Uh, not that, you know, resting Salah is necessarily giving up, but I just don't necessarily understand that. But my thing is, even if Salah does start these final two games, he's probably not going to score. And Son probably is going to get at least one, if not two or more against Norwich City because they're so poor. But Mohamed Salah has been in very, very poor form recently over the past, you know, two or three months since he came back from AFCON. In his past eight Premier League games, he's accumulated 1.87 XG. That is extremely low, especially for a team like Liverpool, who are built off just creating chance after chance and finding a way to do that. But it's not just since he's been back from AFCON. This entire season for Salah is overrated, in my opinion, especially goal scoring wise. When you look at uh, his goals compared to Son Heung-min, he has 22 goals and Son has 21, right? But five of those are penalties for Salah. So if you're looking at his non-penalty XG, that's 21-17. If you're looking at the XG of those goals, 
Salah has 17 goals from 18.79 XG. So he's underperforming his XG by almost two goals. Song Hyung Min, on the other hand, has 21 non-penalty goals from 13.86 XG. That means he's overperforming his XG by almost seven goals. Song Hyung Min is having a way better season than Mohamed Salah, uh, goal scoring wise, and it needs to be recognized because just because Liverpool is in a team like Liverpool that creates so many chances, he's gonna get more goals from that, and he's also you know has penalties. It's different than Son, who's just scoring goals that he shouldn't even be scoring. I don't disagree with you, Justin. I mean, it was kind of the same story last year. Salah underperformed his non-penalty XG last year as well. In fact, Dominic Calvert-Lewin actually scored his non-penalty XG at a higher rate than Mohamed Salah. Obviously, didn't score as many goals. I mean, he still scored a lot, but didn't score as many because he plays for Everton and not for Liverpool, right? And that's kind of a given. But, you know, what Son is doing, considering he's not on pens and he's still, you know, potentially about to win the golden boot without taking any penalties, that would be insane if he manages to pull it off. And that would definitely go down as one of the most impressive seasons I've seen from a player uh, in recent history, for sure. Probably the best goal scoring season since Salah had, what was it? 32 in 2017, 18. So no, I, I definitely think Song Hyun-min's season needs to be appreciated for how remarkable it's been. And some of the goals that he scored, you know, as you say, eight XG or seven XG over performing, that's crazy. That just means he's, he's putting things in the back of the net that he has no right to put in the back of the net. Absolutely. And then we can move to the FA Cup final between this Liverpool team and Chelsea, uh, which was, you know, we're talking about XG. They These just teams couldn't put one in the back of the net, right? I mean, this went all the way to penalties, uh, which is just ridiculous considering that Chelsea through 90 minutes had 1.27 XG. Liverpool had 2.13 XG assuming we get at least three goals just in those first 90 minutes. Um, and then just Liverpool died in the, in extra time, zero XG at all in extra time for Liverpool. And then it went to penalties uh, and it was uh, an exciting penalty shootout uh, because, you know, Mendy had that save where he had to save to keep the minute on that fifth round against Mane, who, you know, has done really well in penalty shootouts recently. Um, but Liverpool did find a way through eventually. Uh, and so that treble and theoretically that quadruple is still on for Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, Justin, here's a remarkable stat, but I think both of these cup finals uh, between Chelsea and Liverpool have been very entertaining, but they've scored zero goals. They've scored none. Both of them have gone to pens from nil-nil games through 120 minutes, despite there being 7.32 XG. So you're right. It is just a story of neither of these teams be able to score on each other until it comes down to placing it in the back of the net from 12 yards out. And it was Mason Mount with the, de the decisive miss. It looked like Asperlequeta's miss off the post was going to be, you know, what ended up costing Chelsea. But you're right. Mendy made that big save on Mane. Um, and then it was Mount who, you know, just too savable of a penalty. Allison really had no trouble keeping that one out. And then it's Kostas Simikas of all people who steps up and buries it in the bottom left corner to, to win the trophy for Liverpool. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of crazy how neither of these games had goals through 240 minutes of football, despite the amount of chances that both teams were creating. Absolutely. Expecting over seven goals. Uh, and getting none is just ridiculous. It shows that, to me, that Liverpool are a team that are built just to create chance after chance after chance, and they don't even need the best finishers necessarily, um, which I know we've been critical of Salah. We've been, yeah, Luis Diaz is not necessarily the best finisher. Jota is probably their best finisher, but he's, because he can do it with his head more than uh, you would expect for somebody his size, but it's not a system that needs it. And then Tuchel is, you know, a counterattacking system with not uh, a bunch of clinical finishers. You thought Lukaku was going to be that guy, right? But hasn't been. Uh, we can move from one cup to another. This one in the United States, the U.S. Open Cup. There was a bunch of action uh, in this round of 32. Very exciting stuff. Two big, big comebacks by Sporting Kansas City and Nashville, respectively. Garrett, my question to you is, 
as they both came back from two goals down, both scored stoppage time equalizers to send it to extra time and then win it. Very similar. Which one was better? I'm going to go for KC's victory. And there's a couple of reasons why. Firstly, 98th minute. The eighth minute of stoppage time is, is how long it took them to send this to extra time, which is remarkable. Dallas were right on the brink of getting this over the line and couldn't hold on. They, they got a red card a minute before that goal uh, due to denying of an obvious goal scoring opportunity. So, you know, they were doing everything to try to get this over the line, hacking people down, making sure that they're not going to score, but they ended up conceding from a corner. And, and you know, it's remarkable how late, Kansas City were able to pull this off and then you know they got two goals in extra time in one four two but the other reason I think this is the better comeback Justin is that these teams are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum at the moment Kansas City have been remarkably bad this season um you know it's a team I predicted to be towards the top of the Western Conference um and Dallas I had down where Kansas City are so Kansas City are in 13th right now Dallas are second in the West on 22 points they've only lost one game that is the least in the entire league tied with Philadelphia so for me it's Kansas City they were the underdogs even though they were at home but they've been having a really bad season Dallas have been on fire and they managed to pull this off and turn the game around uh and so for me it's Kansas City yeah I totally understand that uh, I'm gonna have to disagree with you though I think that it's Nashville and there's a few reasons why um the first one being Sporting Kansas City were the better side in that game and should have found a win earlier the second, Nashville, on the other hand, not so much. I mean, less possession. Uh, Atlanta really dominated that first half, and they found a way to switch it in the second half uh, and came out. Honey Mukhtar got the penalty in the 50th minute, and you felt, okay, Nashville are really putting the screws to them and turning this game around. That's what they did. It took them, obviously, until the 92nd minute. Uh, CJ Sapong getting the equalizer in stoppage time. Look, to me, the difference between 90 plus two and 90 plus eight, not that much difference because it's just depending on how much stoppage time you have in the game. Nashville didn't have eight minutes of stoppage time, so it couldn't have been 90 plus eight. Um, but they had, you know, same amount of shots on target, only four, fewer shots. They came back. And to me, this was just incredible uh, because I, I thought that Atlanta had it in the bag at halftime. And the other reason, which may not be the best reason, but to me, it is the reason. This is the first giant moment that Nashville FC fans have at their brand new stadium of Geodis Park. It is their first big memorable cup win. Uh, and I know how exciting that can be as a new franchise. So to me, that is memorable for them and they deserve it. So they, that is the biggest comeback for me, Nashville. I mean, it's both really solid arguments. It's both very solid comebacks. And, you know, there's not a lot to separate between the two. Definitely. The other interesting thing that we had happen, which doesn't happen very often, uh, is an abandonment due to rain and, and weather. So uh, Minnesota did find a way through uh, against Colorado, even despite a late red card, but they had to do it on the next day. So they, they ended the game 1-1 uh, and they stopped it and replayed it on the Thursday. So which was tough for Colorado because then they only got two days of rest, which is really unfair. But uh, Minnesota were able to find a winner after their, they got a red card, Brent Kalman in the 83rd, Emmanuel Reynoso, 87th minute winner down a man uh, after, you know, playing the same game over two days. So congratulations to Minnesota there. And then Justin, one of the teams I mentioned earlier for being one of two teams to only have lost one game in the MLS this season, Philadelphia, who are currently joint top of the East, obviously finished second in the East last season. Very good team. They were knocked out by Orlando in the round of 32. Surprising results at the Exploria Stadium. Uh, it was goals from Erkan Kara and Andreas Perea in the 54th and 57th minute, which would end up being enough for Orlando City, despite Stuart Finley pulling one back for Philadelphia. Uh, but Orlando knocking out Philadelphia and moving on to the round of 32 or to the round of 16. So that's a big result as well. Yeah, it just felt like Orlando City wanted this one a little bit more. They put out a stronger lineup. Uh, they were just a little bit hungrier in this game, it felt they had more possession, more shots, more shots on goal. Uh, it was just a really good performance from Orlando City. Uh, and 
you know, Philly are focusing on the league, which is understandable considering how well they're doing. Um, but I would have liked to see Jim Curtin put out a better starting lineup because Philadelphia are a top team and have the potential to win this tournament and are already out. So uh, tough for them, definitely. And then, Garrett, we can move on to your team because there was one man who took over this game, and his name was Matt Bersano. What a performance from him. That's all I can say. I mean, this game being played at Starfire Stadium, of course, uh, Seattle, returning there for the first time in, in quite a while after COVID. Um, so smaller venue, but a good crowd. Both teams pretty heavily rotated. Um, but yeah, Matt Bersano, the Earthquakes backup goalie, who has been with the club since 2017 and is still yet to make an MLS appearance, just took over in this game. In the first half, he had just an world-class save, Justin, is the way that we described it. Unbelievable save where there was a whole pinball in the box going on. A strike on goal gets deflected, uh, and the last second he's falling one way and reaches his hand up the other and tips it up. I mean, incredible save from him. And then this game, which ended 2-2, um, thanks to goals from Skahan and Cowell for the Quakes and Jimmy Madronda and Freddie Montero for Seattle. It went all the way to penalties, uh, and it went all the way to the keepers, Justin, when Matt Brasano saved Stephen Cleveland's penalty kick, who is the Seattle backup goalie, and then stuck his in the bottom left corner, sending the Quakes through in improbable fashion. And I believe it's only the third time that the Sounders have lost at Starfire Stadium. So uh, an incredible game to watch and a great result for the Quakes, who will be playing against uh, NorCal rivals Sacramento Republic uh, in the round of 16. Absolutely. I mean, that save that Matt Bersano made in the first half, he was completely going to his left, uh, shifting across to, to find a new position. It was a deflection. He did not know that ball was coming, and he just stuck his right hand up with a strong hand and saved that. That is, to me, absolutely the save of the U.S. Open Cup so far. Uh, incredible from Matt Bersano. And, yeah, maybe he'll get an MLS start soon. Get, he deserves it after that performance. Uh, and moving from the best goalkeeping performance I've seen so far this U.S. Open Cup to the best performance from an outfielder I've seen, it was Carlos Hill for New England in a dominating performance against FC Cincinnati. Uh, he had a hat trick uh, in 53 minutes against Cincinnati, uh, and he also assisted one of Buxa's two. This was just Carlos Hill running the game. This is what we like to see. We know how good this player is. Uh, absolutely one of the best players in the league at his best. Uh, and it's just a beauty to watch this guy. Yeah, I mean, rating MVP, we know what he's capable of. Um, and, you know, it's been a very, very tough season for New England so far. But I also think uh, Buxa scoring twice in this game and then scoring twice yesterday in, in MLS, which we'll talk about a bit mm -hmm. later. But I think him coming into form is going to be really, really big if New England want to turn their season around. So, you know, got to rely on those two heavy hitters, Heel and Buxa, if, if New England want a chance of getting back into the playoff race. Absolutely. It really will be the, those two guys, won't it? Uh, and then New York Red Bulls also got a dominant victory, 3-0. Uh, kind of expected, though, against D.C. United, who have been very poor to start the season. New York Red Bulls obviously doing very, very well, especially away from home um, in the league, which this was also at D.C. Uh, and then the last really dominant performance, uh, not necessarily on the scoreline, only 2-0, but I was there, uh, LAFC against Portland. This was just a very controlled LAFC performance, nearly 60% possession. Um, but Portland are a team that always make the game dirty. They make it hard and physical and uh, not open, expansive football that is going to be beautiful to watch, but it's going to be uh, a grinded out type of performance from Portland. That's how they always play against LFC because LFC are, are a fast paced team, right? Portland need to slow them down. Uh, but LFC found a, a very good way out of that uh, and didn't, you know, allow themselves to get caught up. Only got one yellow card for, for the entire game, which is rare uh, in a Portland game. And to me, the most dominant LFC performance against Portland uh, since LFC beat them 4-1 in 2019. 
And that win sets up a round of 16 El Trafico away at Dignity Hill Sports Park against LA Galaxy uh, as big as it gets. Uh, LAFC fans on Twitter saying that, oh, of course it's rigged. Of course we're going to get an El Trafico in the cup. Well, it's the first time we've gotten an El Trafico in the cup uh, and uh, it will be an exciting one, uh, undoubtedly. Yeah, I mean, LAFC still yet to find a win at Dignity Health Sports Park. So, you know, hopefully they'll be able to get it done this time. I mean, that's what I want, uh, of course, being someone who <laughs> is actively rooting against the Galaxy in every game they play. But looking at some of the other matchups, Justin, we have quite a few uh, MLS on MLS T uh, fixtures, but also some lower league teams who are still in it. So we have Orlando against Miami. We get the Florida Derby in the cup as well. So that'll be fun to watch New York city versus new England, the red bulls against Charlotte uh, and sporting Kansas city against Houston um, are the other MLS on MLS fixtures, but it's union Omaha who have made it to the round of 16 and will be facing Minnesota Louisville city will be playing Nashville. And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a NorCal Derby between the earthquakes and Sacramento Republic FC. So really looking forward to round of 16, as we start to get into the real meat and potatoes of the U S open cup this season. Yeah. You know, we might get that uh, matchup between our two teams. If we can both find a way to win uh, it would be in LA. If well, we'll be in LA if, if San Jose can find a, a win either way, right? Either, either in real LA or in Carson. And with that, Justin, let's move over to the MLS where there was, we had another busy weekend. Um, we can start back with the earthquakes again, Justin, who played out a wild, wild game in Vancouver against the Whitecaps, who obviously have been struggling mightily this season. The first half of this game was pretty dead. The second half of this game was the exact opposite, six goals, uh, and it ended in a 3-3 draw. It was Lucas Cavallini opening the scoring in the 52nd minute with a really nice finish into the bottom right-hand corner. But it would be Jamiro Montero scoring his first goal for the Quakes to equalize at 1-1. And then Ibobisi kind of started taking over. He scored in the 73rd minute, uh, instant response from Vancouver in the 75th from Ryan Raposo to make it 2-2. And then Ibobisi goes and scores again on a fantastic counterattack uh, to make it 3-2. But Eric Godoy from a corner in the 90th minute ensured that Vancouver would not drop all three points from a winning position and so it ends in a 1-1 draw um, and a very eventful game but Justin I think Jeremy Abobasi's season thus far is really going under the radar he's been playing for a team who have barely been winning at all this season still only two uh, two wins in the league um, and you know obviously horrible start under Almeida but he is tied for second in the golden boot race right now with seven goals I think he's been really, really good for the Quakes, and no one's really talking about the fact that he's been a standout player at the top of the league, uh, yet he's playing for one of the worst teams. So, you know, I think Jeremy Abobasi in great form um, has not let that awful concussion last year really impact the way that he's been playing, and, and he's looking like a better and better acquisition from the Quakes with every week. And the guy that I thought that was a really good acquisition was Alex Cavello because he turned around or earthquakes you know since Almeida left in these last few weeks quakes got their first win they started they've won what three or four or something like that um until this game and then he had to make a basic rookie mistake in this game which San Jose should have won this game but instead Alex Cavello has to make a, def a substitution on a defensive set piece and concede the equalizer this is basic coaching, man. You cannot make substitutions on a defensive set piece and no wonder you concede on it because people don't know who they're marking. And then elsewhere, Justin, in the Western Conference, it was Portland putting on an absolute show at home at Providence Park, scoring seven goals. That is a franchise record against Sporting Kansas City. Uh, a remarkable game. Justin and, and obviously big after their loss against LAFC. Absolutely. Took the words out of my mouth because they got dominated at the bank of California and they needed to see a response. Uh, and boy, did they see a response seven goals? Uh, it just, it just felt like they were just pouring on and on and on because 
they were ready to score at any point, uh, especially, you know, after ha- halftime, because they only got one in the first half. Six of them came in the second half. Uh, it was just floodgates opened. Uh, Nathan Fergasa getting his MLS debut brace. So good to see that new players coming to MLS succeeding. We always love that. Um, but yeah, as you say, just bouncing back in the biggest fashion possible uh, against Sporting Kansas City, who again continue to struggle. Um, they have had injury issues this entire season, obviously, which is why they're not, you know, as high as we would potentially expect them to be. Polito's, we still don't know when he's going to be back, but you know, they have Johnny Russell back fit. They have Shaloy back fit. They should start to pick it up, and this is certainly not that. And I also think one of the big storylines from this, Justin, is Tim Melia is having a really bad season, which you just don't really expect out of him. He, he's been one of the most consistent and one of the best goalkeepers in MLS for a while. And I mean, yeah, a lot of these, you know, some of these goals, there weren't really anything he could do about. But at the same time, he conceded seven goals from eight shots on target. And so you just kind of have to ask questions of that. And this is not the first time that I've mentioned, oh, Tim Melia should have done better for this. Oh, Tim Melia had a poor game. Uh, he's been pretty bad. If we're being honest, he's been pretty bad this season, which is really surprising considering, you know, how solid he's been for years and years for Kansas city. Yeah. it's a good point. Uh, and in that Western conference, it's getting really tight uh, because a lot of upsets uh, this week, Colorado found a win at home against LAFC uh, just a, a terrible performance from LAFC and some terrible refereeing as well. Uh, the second penalty was just never, ever a penalty. Uh, and then Chicharongo was brought down in the box. If you're going to give that one, you have to give the other one. Uh, so Ted Uncle, I think all MLS fans know if you're if you follow who refs what games, you know Ted Uncle is one of the worst refs uh, in this league. But LAFC deserved to lose that game regardless. Uh, and then. It was Houston finding a win over Nashville as well. RSL getting a big late home win uh, against Austin. Uh, Andrew Brody getting the winner in the 88th minute. So Austin fans were talking all this crap. Oh, we're going to go top of the table since LAFC lost. Nope, but they will meet uh, on Wednesday at the Bank of California. Austin uh, headed to LA. It will be a battle at the top of the Western conference to see who, who can take that number one spot um, with LAFC now on 23 points, uh, Dallas on 22 and Austin on 20. So, so, and then Dallas is up there because they beat LA galaxy to hop above them in the table uh, who LA galaxy now in fourth on 19th point. So uh, just a few slight upsets there in the Western conference, just tightening up the points a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Austin being down to 10 men for almost half the game definitely didn't help their case uh, against RSL. Um, uh, But, I mean, great performance from Dallas. Jesus Ferreira scoring twice. He now leads the Golden Boot race. Um, And obviously, we love to see him in this kind of form uh, as USMNT fans. So, uh, really looking forward to seeing him scoring more and more in MLS this season. And I think that it is very possible that he doesn't let go of that lead for the rest of the year. Yeah, it's very, very possible, Um, but there's going to be a lot of competition. I think there's a lot of really good goal scorers this season in MLS, which is just great to see. Uh, One of those people that is not in the race right now, but could put his hat in there is Raul Ruiz Diaz, who uh, got a goal for Seattle, a penalty though, Um, but it was Seattle bouncing back, another upset against Minnesota, finally getting some points in the Western Conference, right? They're still sitting down at 11th but this to me means something because I thought okay this is the game that I'm going to start judging Seattle because they finally had a little rest uh the CCL's over they can finally start a real lineup in uh the league and see what it does that's what they did and they got a very comfortable and confident uh win and then we had a couple big storylines coming out of the Western Conference this week uh sticking at the top of that table it was first Austin FC giving a three-year contract extension to their head coach, Josh Wolf. Uh, to me, this is just a little bit questionable because we have, look, Josh Wolf has done really, really well, right? For through these first 11 games of the season, nobody expected Austin FC to be uh, not only 
at the top of the table, but just playing the football they are. It's very, very entertaining, very free-flowing, high-scoring football, right? Equal uh, for most goals scored with LAFC on 23 this season. Very entertaining, Driussi, MVP candidate. But it's been 11 games. The man was terrible for an entire year, and then you give him a three-year contract extension after doing well for 11 games? At least wait until later in the season. Wait till he you know, builds this entire season. I mean, what, he's making playoffs right now for the first time? Okay, exciting. I don't understand why that warrants a three-year extension. Yeah, it definitely seems like they jumped the gun a bit here, but but I still feel like this deal will probably work out. I mean, what he's done to turn around the worst team in the league last season into immediate playoff contenders, top of the West playing. I mean, you're right. Like, it is very ahead of schedule, most likely, um, but I still think Josh Wolf deserves a lot of recognition, maybe not a three-year extension yet, but I mean, I guess they felt we're going to do it later in the season anyway, so might as well do it now, but he's definitely building a really solid team at Austin. There's a great culture there, we know, so as much as I agree it, it's a bit ahead of time to be doing this, I still feel like it'll probably work out for Austin and will end up being a good decision. And then we have a big, big transfer rumor because Juventus played their final game of Serie A season, drawing 2-2 with Lazio today. Uh, it was Chiellini's last game in a Juventus shirt after, what, 16 or 17 seasons there. Um, incredible, you know, history, incredible career that he's had. But he's coming to MLS, supposedly. Uh, LAFC have put in an offer reported by The Athletic. Vancouver Whitecaps were also interested, but LAFC had his discovery rights, which is an MLS rule. It basically just means that you put in some paperwork saying that you're interested in this player, uh, which LAFC did first. So, and Chiellini seems to be eager to accept uh, LAFC's contract offer. It will not be a DP contract. It is a TAM contract, which means it can not exceed $1.65 million per year. Uh, so still, you know, chunky fee a chunky uh, contract for mls but n- not you know dp level yeah i mean you talk about discovery rights let's be honest do we really think chiellini would go to vancouver no they have no fans i, I was tweeting about this justin telling you about it during that quakes game like oh my god bc place was empty uh so you know and they're they're towards the bottom of the western conference just they're at the bottom of the Western conference even. So I don't see a world in which Chiellini, even if Vancouver had submitted that paperwork first, that Chiellini would have agreed to join Vancouver. So I think, ML, uh, I think LAFC could be a, a pretty decent landing spot for him. Obviously we know he's getting on, but he's still a player who I think could put out some really solid performances for LAFC. I mean, he literally was a goal scorer in the Euros final, like, a year ago, less than a year ago. So uh, if, if LAFC actually managed to pull this off, definitely going to be a good signing for them, in my opinion. Yeah, that discovery rate's basically just worth probably 50000 uh, in GAM or something like that. Uh, so yeah, very unlikely going to affect it. But Chiellini to LAFC, look, there's a lot of uh, debate among LAFC fans. Is this a great move or is this you know, a little bit too much being a little bit nostalgia merchants? Maybe we want, a, we want a big player, big name. Um, but no, to me, it's a big, good signing because it's not a DP deal. If it was a DP deal, not down for it. But also, it's only until the end of next season. So likely, he's probably going to join somewhere mid this season. Uh, hopefully soon. You know, we I don't know the exact dates, but uh, should be relatively soon. And I think that he can provide a big uh, leadership role for LAFC because, you know, we have young center backs in Mamadou Fall. Uh, and he can be a leader to Segura, uh, Murillo as well. We have a bunch of center backs. We tried to bring in Daniel Henry to be that leader, but he's not really, you know, he, that level at all, right? Chiellini is it, Italy captain, Juventus captain. That is the type of leadership that we've really never seen in MLS probably. Um, and so I think that the way that F- Mamadou Fall will develop, as we've been talking about him on this podcast, he, he's a, a big prospect uh, not only in MLS, but for European teams to start looking at and to bring Chiellini in to develop him and be a leader as, you know, John Thorrington, the general manager of LEC, has put his, all his chips in the basket for this year, trying to win those uh, trophies. And Chiellini could be a big part of leading LAFC to that. 
And speaking of Juventus, Justin, uh, earlier last week on Wednesday, they lost to Inter Milan in the Coppa Italia final. I mean, this was an incredible game. Nicola Barella scoring an absolute banger in the sixth minute to open the scoring. It was Alexandro, of all people, who would find an equalizer in the second half. Um, and then Juve actually took the lead through Dusan Vlaovic, uh, scoring like a, a second chance. His first shot actually hit Handanovic in the face and then came back right back to Vlaovic, who tapped it in. But Inter would not be denied. They got a clear penalty in the 80th minute. Chalanolu sticking at top bins. And then it was the Ivan Perisic show in extra time. Uh, winning and scoring a penalty to give Inter a 3-2 lead and then scoring an absolute banger on his left foot in the 122nd minute to make it official Inter win the Coppa Italia final, which means Juve have not won a trophy this season for the first time in God knows how long. I believe it was since 2011 is the last time Juventus have not won a trophy, Garrett. Uh, And get this, who won the Coppa Italia in that season as well? It was Inter Milan. And who won Serie A in that season? It was AC Milan, who, by the way, are on track to win Serie A again this season. Uh, Serie A is coming down to the final day. Uh, AC Milan have a two-point lead over Inter, so they need to get at least... Uh, or they need to get a win because if they get a draw and Inter are able to find a win, they have a superior goal difference and Inter would win the league. So Milan going into the final day need to find a win against Sassuolo to win Serie A. And I think they will, Justin. They've won all of their last five. They've been on incredible form and Inter have been slipping up and that's why they left the door open for AC Milan and they've been taking full advantage. So I do think we will end up seeing uh, AC Milan lifting the Serie A title, uh, which is just quite remarkable considering, you know, where they were, you know, only two, three years ago, nowhere near the top of Serie A. So um, if they can finish the deal, get that win against Sassuolo, which they really should, then, uh, you know, huge accomplishment for that side of the San Siro. And then, Justin, before we move into some transfer news, because we have a lot going on at the moment, I just quickly wanted to mention something which broke earlier today, which is Blackpool player Jake Daniels uh, officially coming out as gay, which is a a really big deal. Um, You know, I think he's the only active footballer in England who has come out. So, you know, it's great to see after obviously Josh Cavallo uh, in Australia becoming the first active player to come out as gay, seeing more players follow suit and try to be role models for young LGBTQ plus people who are trying to make their way in the world of football. You know, it's just really great to see. So I just wanted to mention that. um, And, you know, congratulations to him for, you know, being able to reveal his true identity. And hopefully, uh, you know, obviously that becomes more normalized and more accepted within the world of football. It is everybody's game. Absolutely. Right. It's, it's about the representation because we know there are a ton of uh, LGBTQ plus players in football and in all of sports. Um, but we just don't know it because they haven't come out. So uh, that, that is a big step towards that because the more we have more players that come out, the more normalized it gets and the more uh, representation we have for, as you say, uh, the young kids looking up and seeing that they have somebody who represents them in, in playing in the top leagues. And with that, Justin, as a lot of seasons have come to an end uh, this week, we have a lot of transfer talk to talk about the biggest one probably being Kylian Mbappe, who, you know, there's been this whole saga of is he staying at PSG? Is he going to Real Madrid? But we had some very big news dropping today about Kylian Mbappe via David Ornstein. Absolutely, Garrett. Uh, you know, we were going to come and talk about who debate where we thought Mbappe would go. Uh, but now it's basically determined. Uh, David Ornstein has reported Kylian Mbappe understood to have agreed personal terms with Real Madrid. So he has not yet signed. PSG have not given up. But uh, basically, it looks like it's done because Mbappe has said that he will be announcing it very soon, uh, his decision. And 
now we get from David Ornstein that he has agreed personal terms with Real Madrid. Basically, that just means they have agreed upon a contract. So they just, once the season's over, he's out of contract at PSG and is free to go sign that contract uh, at Real Madrid. So we'll see if that deal gets over the line. Uh, It's going to have huge repercussions, whether it happens or not, obviously. And then another deal, Justin, that could have huge repercussions. Robert Lewandowski is likely leaving Bayern. He said it himself. And the most rumored destination at the moment is Barcelona, which would be very, very interesting. But he has said that he will not extend his contract. So maybe he will be sold this summer by Bayern so that they get something out of him instead of him walking for free at the end of next season. Do you think Barcelona is the most likely destination? And do you think it's the best destination that Robert Lewandowski could choose at the moment? Uh, yes and no. So yes, I think that it's the most likely. No, I don't think it's the best. Um, I think that, yeah, he, he has a dream to join Barca. A lot of players, you know, have this connection with Barca. They grew up looking up to Barcelona, which is completely understandable. Um, but Barcelona are just not at that level uh, right now. Lewandowski believes that he can take it. Now, here's the thing that it would be incredible for Lewandowski, right? Imagine he goes to Barca and he revives them. I think it could do a lot for his reputation because right now he's known just as a poacher who plays in an incredible team, scores a lot of goals because of the team that he plays in uh, and wins a bunch of trophies because of that. But if he were to go and be that man for Barcelona, I think it would change a lot of the way, the way that a lot of people look at him, including myself. So uh, I think that in that way, it could be a good move. But I think that, you know, you should probably be going to a team that is, you know, performing better and has a better chance at winning the top trophies if you're Robert Lewandowski and you have that ability. However, as far as will he stay or go, I think that he's probably just going to stay at Bayern this next year because I don't see Bayern selling him, uh, even though, you know, it's losing money for them. I think they want to use him next year and see what they can win with him. Um, and just keep him under contract and then let him go probably to Barcelona next year. That's what I see most likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, Fabrizio Romano tweeted earlier today that Bayern's president, Herbert Heiner, has said that Lewandowski has his contract till 2023 and will fulfill it. But I don't know if that's the best move for Bayern personally. I mean, I I think that they should try to get something out of him. I mean, this is a world-class striker still scoring so many goals and letting him walk for free. I just don't see how that's a smart decision, especially considering how smart Bayern are in the market and the, uh, you know, talent, the caliber of player that they could go get with that money that they could get, because there's no way Lewandowski would command a small fee despite his age, right? This is still a guy scoring 35, 40 goals a year. Um, So I I personally think that if Lewandowski is hell-bent on not signing a new contract, I think Byron should cash out. That's what I would do if I were them. Definitely understandable. The other big player coming out of contract at the end of the season, uh, Manchester United player, Paul Pogba. He's not going to stay at United, is he? No, definitely not. I, I feel like, I feel like this has PSG written all over it. I don't know if Madrid will will want to pull that off after, you know, already splashing big on Mbappe and Antonio Rudiger uh, on free transfers. So, I mean, Pogba obviously has always talked about wanting to go to Madrid and maybe Madrid would want to make that happen considering, you know, how old their midfield is really. But I mean, Tony Cruz and, and Luka Modric have still been playing unbelievably this season. So I, I feel like this might have PSG written all over it, especially if Mbappe leaves and, you know, that frees up a, a lot of money for them to play with. And I think we could see Paul Pogba going to, going to France. Yeah. I think that's a very, very good possibility, right. Going uh, and playing in his home nation for the first time, uh, which would be in- incredible for him. But I also think Juventus is a really good possibility. Uh, you know, Juve falling off this season, as we discussed, not winning a trophy, um, and need to find a way to fix that. And Paul Pogba, when he was at Juventus, that was the best years of his career, undoubtedly. That's when he became the world-class player that everyone regards him as, uh, or, or those who do regard him as a world-class player still. Um, and I think that if he goes back there, he can be that man again, maybe, for Juventus. So I, I think that could that could be a really good landing spot for him. And then, Justin, speaking on Juventus, and obviously we talked about Chiellini having played his final game for 
the club. So did Paulo Dybala, who was crying after their game today at the Allianz Stadium. Um, we still are, are not sure where he's going to be going, but his contract has expired uh, and he will be leaving. So where do you think Dybala might land? For me, I was saying that it's not the best landing spot for Robert Lewandowski, but I think it could be for Paulo Dybala and that is Barcelona. I would love to see him there. I think that um, he has said in 2015 that he would dream of playing for Barcelona or Manchester City. That's you know who he always plays on PlayStation. Um, but you know I don't think he's going to get to Man City, nor would he uh, get the playing time that he desires at Man City. And I think you know he goes to Barcelona. He's basically a locked starter there. Gets as many minutes as he wants. Um, it's as he says a dream for him and again, he can help revive Barcelona. I think that a lot of players are looking at Barcelona right now as I can be the guy and be a cult hero at, at Barcelona um, to, if, if I can go be the guy to bring them back to the glory. All right, Justin, I'll throw a curveball out for this one. There were a lot of There was a lot of talk about, Oh, Dybala potentially joining Arsenal if they qualify for the champions league, but it does not look like that that's going to happen. So what if he went to Tottenham? I mean, think about it, Justin, they have a world-class manager in Antonio Conte, who, you know, you said earlier is probably top three in the league behind Pep and Klopp. They have Kane and Son, who are two of the best attackers in the world at the moment. What if you threw Dybala in at that 10 Kulusevsky, Kane, Son, Dybala, that would be disgusting. You know, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, the, what I don't agree is that it's a rogue shout. Uh, I think it's a very, very likely possibility. In fact, you know, he's been linked with Tottenham as he's been linked with Chelsea. So I don't think Chelsea's going to happen. I think Tottenham's easily the most likely destination in the Premier League. And then, Justin, one last big name who will be moving for free this summer is Luis Suarez, who played his last game for Atletico Madrid uh, this weekend. So Suarez is someone who was rumored to be going to MLS, but now Fabrizio Romano has said that he does not want to go to MLS. Where do you think he might end up? This one might be a little bit rogue. I don't know. Inter Milan? See, here's the thing, right? They have Lautaro Martinez, and they play him next to Edin Dzeko, right? And they are doing very well. They're, you know, competing for Serie A, almost able to win it, probably going to lose it. As we just discussed, they won uh, the Copa Italia. But if you rotate Suarez and Dzeko, because both are getting old, uh, you're not going to have both for every single game. But then you have very easy rotation in those, you know, front two striker positions. I think that could he could come in and win uh, Serie A for Milan next season, or Inter Milan next season, like he did for Atletico in Spain. All right, Justin, I think I'm going to go with an even more rogue shout, although it does make some sense. I'm going to say Aston Villa in the Prem. Uh, here's kind of my thoughts. Obviously, we've seen something like this happen in January, which was Philippe Coutinho going to join Villa because of Steven Gerrard, obviously former teammates, and Suarez also played with both of them at Liverpool. And so my thought is, well, Danny Ings has not really panned out in my opinion, although I think he might stay at Villa, but Ollie Watkins, there's been rumors about him potentially leaving. So if Villa sell Ollie Watkins, they could easily bring in Suarez on a free uh, and, and that would be some instant firepower into their 11. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure if Suarez would prefer to go be playing mid table Premier League just because he has a couple friends he knows there, or if you would rather go compete for some more trophies at Inter Milan, but I think Villa is definitely a, a destination that we can't yet rule out. And I'd love to have him in the Premier League. That would be very interesting, uh, especially, you know, maybe not at a top club because Villa are, you know, more mid-table, although Stevie G's bringing them up. And then we can move on to our new segment, Garrett, which we are calling Moment of the Week. Uh, we each come up with our you know, favorite moment that maybe we wouldn't be talking about on the podcast. Otherwise that happened um, over the past week in the world of football, anywhere in the world. Uh, for me, it what came in the Bundesliga. It was the Bundesliga final day over the weekend. Um, and the relegation battle came down to the last minutes. Uh, it was Hertha Berlin and Stuttgart uh, fighting over that last 
spot where you know you get that safety Hertha needed to just get one point um while Stuttgart needed to win and have Hertha lose now Stuttgart were playing Köln so a, a lot easier game than what Hertha had uh against Dortmund but Hertha went up one nil against Dortmund and you felt oh wow it, it's really over they got a penalty in the 18th minute and you thought okay finally they have the safety it's not even going to be that exciting. Well, it, it became exciting because Erlan Holland got the penalty in his final Dortmund game to make it 1-1. And then Mukoko, late in the 84th minute, scored for Dortmund to get the win on the last day of the season. But it, it didn't really matter for Dortmund. But it did matter for Stuttgart because they heard that news. And Wataru Indo became the hero for Stuttgart in the 92nd minute he scored a winner to keep them in the Bundesliga, uh, and the whistle was blown soon after. The fans stormed the pitch. Uh, normally, I worry about players when, when fans just storm the pitch like that, uh, and all the players are still on the pitch. Not the issue here. They were partying together, uh, players being put on shoulders, players getting you know massive hugs, and not even worried about getting off the pitch. They're just taking pictures and partying on the pitch with the fans. It was incredible to see what a moment uh, required two late goals, two comebacks, uh, just incredible. Congratulations to Stuttgart for surviving. And from Hertha Berlin's perspective, they now go into a two-leg relegation playoff against Hamburg, two very historic teams in Germany. So it will definitely be interesting to see which one of them goes up and which one of them goes down. So really interesting. I, I kind of like the format, Justin, of, of the playoff there where the, the team on the fringe uh, in the Bundesliga 2 plays against the team on the fringe in the Bundesliga. And if there is an upset, that would be pretty amazing to see. My moment of the week, Justin, comes from England, from the lower leagues even, where Stockport County have been promoted back into the EFL after an 11-year absence. It's, they are a very historic club for people who don't know, who joined the EFL in 1900 and enjoyed 111 straight years of professional football uh, before being relegated. And uh, they won the National League straight away uh, this season. Incredible year for them. And uh, a team from, you know, just south of Manchester, very historic club, are back where they belong in the professional ranks in League Two. Uh, you know, same scenes as at Stuttgart, fans storming the pitch at Edgeley Park. So uh, that was really cool to see as well. Absolutely fantastic. We love to hear those type of stories, uh, historic clubs getting back to where they should be. And with that, Justin, that closes out this episode for the week. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at U90Football, that's U90Football, and on Instagram at U90FootballPod, that's U90FootballPod, same as the Twitter account. Uh, we have been posting a lot of clips from our episodes there, so if you ever do miss an episode, you can go look at some of the main talking points over there, so be sure to check that out. Um, we have, obviously, some amazing uh, games coming up. We've got Championship Sunday. We've got the midweek games, all the things we've been talking about. So there's a lot of football you cannot miss, and we will be back next week to discuss it all. Hopefully, Everton will be safe by then, right, Justin? And hopefully, City will have won the title, uh, but we'll see. So until then, have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next time.